You ready for this? Come on now. This is going to... Uh, I need, I'll pray real quick. I'll pray real quick. Lord Jesus, we need your spirit today. Uh, today is an overwhelming picture of the very purpose for which you came, which is what we celebrate on Christmas. But in that manger, as we saw in the Gospel of Luke, a king was born. But we're going to get a little bit more in depth into what that king actually looks like what the qualities of that king are. And uh, it gives us a reflection, obviously, then of the creator of the universe because that king was, in fact, also the creator of the universe. So, Lord, um, help us today. I need your words. I need your ability to communicate. You were the best of all time at communicating. Lord, I need that today. Uh, There's something so powerful in this message, this triumphal entry, that uh, I just... I need your guidance to be able to speak it in an articulate way that's understandable, maybe for somebody who doesn't even know you, and, all, and equally as much for those who have been walking with you for many, many years. So that's a work of your Spirit, and we, we await the work of your Spirit through the Word, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. <clears throat> so we've been working on this triumphal entry for a while. And uh, I was up maybe three 3.30 this morning, I kind of eyes wa- popped open, and I started thinking through this message, and how are we going to tie this in, and I almost balked at this, because it's technical, there are technical aspects to what we're going to talk about this morning, because you've got to kind of dig back into the Hebrew, and a little bit of that, and I know that I've been doing this long enough, when I see eyeballs roll back into the back of someone's head and they start nodding off or you know, something like that, and I'm going, Lord, I don't want that. I mean, this is a Christmas message. This is a powerful message. And so I'm caught in between two worlds, and then I had uh, two people approach me <clears throat> this morning, and, and they both made similar comments. And they were, this, the, last, the teachings the last couple of weeks were incredibly powerful I know it was a deep dive, but it has really, you know, changed the way I think about this in various ways. And I needed that this morning because I was tempted to kind of just come out here and preach and make this a nice little Christmas message and kind of overlook some of the deeper dive in this, and I'm not going to do that. We're going to go deep here today because I think what's hidden in here, now hidden hidden in the sense that it's not something like, oh, this is some big, huge revelation, but it's, it was hidden from the eyes of the disciples. It was hidden from the uh, early on. There are many things that we don't get until we look back through the Christ event. Or in our, in our time, my view is for the reestablishment as an example, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, we began to a, be able to look back and interpret scriptures as they progressively unfold. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so this triumphal entry, it would have been very easy two weeks ago just to kind of say, look, he came in, he was riding on a donkey, this fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah, which would have been great. It would have been awesome. And then we would have all, we'd have been right into the, we'd have been right into the crucifixion by about now. And yet I took two weeks, two weeks in this portion of Luke chapter 19 to go deeply into why was Jesus a king and why did he come riding on a donkey and what were the prophets seeing? So as we went back in time, which was awesome, to go back in time and see what the prophets were saying, I think some of you, it really took hold in your spirit. It's like this is overwhelming evidence. I mean, this is not speculative. This is overwhelming 
evidence that Jesus, that God was intending on sending someone in the line of David who would come as a king and at the same time, strangely, also, strangely, a suffering servant, both. We're going to call him the hybrid king this morning, the hybrid king. We always like the hybrid cars. I hear from some people, some of the articles I read, that people are kind of moving away from the EVs a little bit now, but they like the hybrid. They like a little bit of both. They don't want to be stuck somewhere in between Blythe and, and the desert coming back from Phoenix, and they can't find a charging station in Quartzsite, and they don't know how they're going to get home. Well, wouldn't it be nice to have both electric and a little bit of gas if we need it there? That'd be a hybrid model, and I th- I've, I've been reading that those are kind of in vogue EV is, is still a little bit challenging to adopt fully. Or I met a guy the other day, and he said, well, we have one EV, depending on the trip we're taking, and then we have, a, we have a, an ICE, what they call the internal combustion engine. We have an ICE vehicle, too, which is just a, an old-fashioned car like I have, you know. <clears throat> so uh, that runs on gasoline that you go to Costco and wait like 15 or 20 minutes in line. So, so this is going to be the hybrid king. <clears throat> so I'm not going to start, I'm not going to go back again and read the triumphal entry. We've done that the last two weeks. I do want to look at a particular aspect of the Davidic covenant. Now, the reason we went into the Davidic covenant is because if you'll remember, it's, it's promising, it's getting a picture into the future of this forever king, a forever king. <clears throat> and there's all kinds of, I've read more this last week, just all the different interpretive views, and this kind of relates to Solomon, and that kind of relates to the king, and this is clearly messianic, this is clearly fulfilled in Jesus and all that. But I'm going to give you my take. I'll qualify it as such. I'm going to give you my take on a particular aspect of this that I think will, I hope it explodes in your mind and your heart, and it draws you into a place of worship. That's my hope. The Word should do that in us, should it not? It should draw us into a place, not just, oh, I have more information now. I understand a lot more history about the Bible. That's fine. But if it's not drawing you into closer relationship with Jesus, He is the Word become flesh. He is the Word. So as I'm learning the Word, I'm actually learning about Him and the very nature of Jesus and the very purpose He has for us. And that means something to all of us, doesn't it? Who am I and why am I here? Okay, so 2 Samuel 7. Let's revisit that real quickly. This is the Davidic covenant. We looked in great detail. I didn't intend originally to do that, but I just felt so compelled the last two weeks to do that. And now we're going to get to this very enigmatic portion of Scripture. And uh, I have really spent some time thinking through this and and asking the Lord, what is your heart in this? And I think I have something for you this morning that's going to be exciting. Um, okay, Jeff, quit setting it up and get to it. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are complete, again, this is Nathan speaking to King David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, you're not going to be the forever king, David, but it's going to be in the line of David, of you. I will raise up your descendant after you, and well, it could be Solomon. Or it could be kind of just kind of the collective group of kings, many of which were wicked after that. And and he will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, this could have been Solomon. Solomon's kingdom was certainly established in a very profound way. I mean, it was was a large body of land that he oversaw. He shall build a house for my name. Still could be Solomon. He He built the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
This is something Solomon did not do. We alluded to that last week in 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, the Lord says, I'm gonna, I am going to tear the kingdom from you, but not in your life, but afterwards. And that exact, is exactly what happened after King Solomon. And, and, so, and he definitely was not a forever kingdom. And he says, I will be a father to him. Now he's saying to him, whoever this descendant is, and he will be a son to me. So when Jesus comes claiming to be the son of God, uh, this is significant because God's saying he's going to be a son to me. And then this is where it gets strange. And some will say, well, now that just kind of referentially goes back to Solomon and then we go back to Jesus again. I don't think so. We're not going to move that quickly. We're going to go back and do a few technical things with this interpretive view here. It says when, and I'm teaching from the NASB, when he commits iniquity... And everybody immediately would say, what? Well, that can't be Jesus because he, was, he had to be the unblemished lamb. He was without sin. I mean, we know that. Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted in every way we are and yet without sin. So this clearly can't be Jesus. So maybe none of this applies to Jesus, and yet there's a forever kingdom involved here. So some will say, well, some, it kind of goes in and out. Solomon and then Jesus and then Solomon and then somebody else and then maybe some descendants and... I don't think so. I think this is still referring specifically to Jesus, and I'm going to explain why I believe that is the case. It says, and I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So Saul's first king, then David, then Solomon, and then after that, the kingdom was divided into the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And it really was. The kingdom was ripped away from the descendants. Uh, but my loving kindness will not depart as I took it away from Saul. And then verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What does this mean? I'm going to correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Okay, is everybody kind of there, all right? So we're going to try to unpack this because if we do so, it's going to give great explanation to the hybrid king so we can understand why Jesus came in on a donkey, so we can understand why he was also a great king, so we can understand why he demanded a parade, why he had to set up this parade. It was very, very important. He was claiming and setting... a in, Having this parade, if you will, for lack of a better term, or this triumphal entry at before he was going to give his life a week from then, he was setting this thing up and he was making claim to be this forever king. But he came in on a donkey. Is it a peace mission or is it a triumphal entry? Or is it both? I think it's a hybrid king. Okay, so I want to go back and I want to look at this, this particular portion Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, you know, I did a study this week and, uh, and for me it was, it was profound. I mean, I, I, felt like the, I felt like it just exploded in my mind. Commits iniquity is actually two words that we use to describe one Hebrew word, which is ava. Ava is to commit iniquity in part but not in whole. It has a lot of, as many Hebrew words, they're kind of different interpretive views. Or how can you unpack this? Is he actually committing iniquity? Or it can mean to be bowed down with sin on top of you. 
It can, be a, it can be a place where you're loaded down with sin. To be bowed down with sin upon you commits iniquity. I think what he is saying here, and when using the word ava, is that he's saying, here's what the prophet is seeing. He's seeing this picture of a, of a servant of some sort, or in this case, a king, a forever king. And when he, or if he, but when he commits iniquity, this, he will be bowed down with all of this sin placed upon his back. This word ava is used in many, a, 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 diff, a number of different ways and places, and it can obviously mean to commit, clearly to commit iniquity, but it also can have a picture of having sin placed upon someone or having the Lord do the, the doing of the sin, not the doing of the sin, but the placement of sin upon somebody. Let me give you another example. I want to take you to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. One of the place, one of the few places in the Bible almost nobody ever spends time or does messages is the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, if you've ever read it, it seems to be the most defeating um, number of chapters here that you've ever seen in your life. It's just like the judgment, and they're horrible, and they're judgment, and it's terrible, and it, you know, it's just, it's lament, it's lament. And I, I, I'm trying to think if I've ever even done a particular message exclusively out of the book of Lamentations. Sometimes people refer back to Lamentations chapter 3 when they get to about verse 23, and it talks about your mercies are new every morning. Now, we, many of you have heard that verse. You might even quote that verse. That might be even a verse that you crochet into your little thing if you had a grandmother and she put it and you put it up in a little special room, you know, and you have that little thing. His mercies are new every morning, and that's very comforting. But most of Lamentations is brutal. It's Jeremiah looking out in the nations and feeling as if in some way he was taking on the very punishment for the nation of Israel itself. Lamentations chapter 3. Let's start reading here in verse 1. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. Okay, now I'm going to... Again, I, I just I felt compelled this morning and said, I, I want to go, I want to go down this road. I want to go down this road. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. Now remember, we saw the rod and the strokes of men coming when this forever king committed iniquity. Was it Solomon or might it have been actually a picture of Jesus, though not committing? Was it actually something that was put on him where the Lord did the pudding? That's the question, if you're following me. Okay, let's go to the next verse. Verse 2, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Now, this, this gets eerily close to Isaiah 52 and 53. It's very strange. It's like a suffering servant, okay? Verse 3. It goes on and says, surely against me, he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. Okay. Verse four. So he has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He's broken my bones. Now we know clearly from the Psalms and the story in the gospel that Jesus' bones were not broken. But this is Jeremiah specifically speaking. He said, and, and I don't know that Jeremiah maybe had, maybe had bones broken literally, or this is just a metaphor. But Jeremiah, if you know the story of Jeremiah, suffered incredibly over long extended period of time trying to 
inform Israel that their days were shortened and they must turn back to the Lord. And he suffered brutally for it. Brutally for it. He was a grief bearer on behalf of Israel itself. Verse 5. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. This sounds just like Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. This sounds like what Jesus went through on our behalf. Verse 7, and it says, uh, excuse me, verse 6, in dark places he has made me dwell. Oh, we missed it. Go back to verse 6 if you don't mind. That was my fault. In dark, he has besieged me and encompassed me with bitterness. Uh, Excuse me. (laughs) In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have been dead. Okay, verse 7, he has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. He is doing the walling in. He is making my chain heavy. Now, I'm going to go, I'm going to read straight out of the NASB here. And and we're going to look at this real quick. Lamentations 3. And look at, I want you to look down here at this verse 7 in the NASB, okay? It says, and the Lord has rejected, uh, excuse me, for chapter 3, verse 7. This is what happens when you do it early in the morning. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer, verse 8. And then verse 9, he has blocked my ways and hewn stone. He, he has made my path crooked. And as I was studying this, I went back and I said, where is Ava? Where is this term used? And it's used right there. Jeremiah wasn't, Jeremiah was not concocting this. Jeremiah was one of the most righteous men that I've ever seen in my life. I, I love reading about Jeremiah. You can talk about somebody you can, like Paul says, you know, uh, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. I, I, when I see Jeremiah's life, I say, my life is so pathetic relative to Jeremiah. Sometimes I complain when it takes time or things are slow or people don't show up or things don't go ministerially like I want. And I'm like, Jeremiah was nothing but brutalized his entire ministry for decades, never got any credit for anything, was only brutalized by his own people. And yet he stood in there as a grief bearer on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. And then he says, and then he uses this word, Ava, which is the God himself made my way, my road, my path crooked. Now, does God really make our roads crooked? Ava? Or was God in some way giving us a picture of the Messiah through this very, these various prophecies uh, in, in laments, if you will, and lamentations? Now, again, the question is, did, did this forever king, when he commits iniquity... Can this refer to Jesus? I think what we're seeing here is we're seeing a picture of when this, when this comes on, when the Lord makes the path crooked, when he, when he bows down, when the servant bows down and there's sin placed upon him, that's what this is. Rather than him himself committing adultery, he's the grief bearer. That's exactly what we see here in Jeremiah. He is bearing the grief of all of Israel as he's trying to intercede for them and go before them, and yet here he is in darkness and 
he's alienated and, you know, he was thrown down a well. I mean, there's so many different things that we see with Jeremiah. It was just horrific, his life. And yet he was bearing the grief in some way. This is what we call a type. Jeremiah was a type of suffering servant. This was a picture that God gives us through Jeremiah. He's like, Jeremiah comes in and intercedes on behalf of the nation. And then it actually says, Avah, that God had made his past crooked. Or it looks like Jeremiah is doing the crooked, the crooked uh, acts or the wicked acts. But no, he's bowed down. He's bowed down with this crooked pass in some way placed upon him. Does that make sense? If you can see this, you say, well, where are you going with this? It's so crucial. Now I do want to take you to Isaiah chapter 53, because if we can get this, we can really understand Jesus is about to bear the sin of the world, all nations. He is about to go to the cross. We saw that very explicitly in the last few weeks. He's about to bear everything, and yet he's fulfilling the Davidic line. How does this work together. And so when we see Isaiah, we know this is a suffering servant. This is a picture. More Jewish men and women have come to faith. I've told you this before. More Jewish men and women have come to faith in Jesus because of this passage, because it's so strikingly apparent that this is referencing a future, 700 years in the future, Jesus himself. I'm going to give you just a portion of it. Are you ready? Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6 says, but he was pierced through. Isaiah's looking into the future. He's seen somebody that, again, is, is a grief bearer. He doesn't know who this is. He's calling him a suffering servant, one like a lamb led to slaughter. The latter part of 52 was he's going to be sprinkling the nations. He's marred more than any man. I mean, and then we get to verse 5 here, and he was pierced through. So is he actually seen piercings, pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell on him, fell on him. He didn't commit it, but it's as if he did commit it. It was placed upon him. That's what Isaiah's seen. Our sin, our wickedness, our crookedness was placed upon the suffering servant as if he was bowed down in sin, it was placed upon him. That's what Isaiah's seen. It fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned, well, to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, what's fascinating here is, do you guys, guys, do you have uh, seven and eight here? Do you have the seventh verse? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. And then verse eight, catch this. Now, catch this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Sounds just like what we read in Lamentations, doesn't it? Light and darkness, and, and I was given over to the land of the dead. And then it goes, for the transgression of my people, to whom what? The stroke was due. The stroke. That word in Hebrew is negah. And you would say, that's just like a, a, a beating. Yes, 
But there's something deeper here. It's the same exact word that we see used in 2 Samuel 7. He said, when he commits iniquity, and he said, then the rods of men and the strokes of men are, it's going to wipe them out. That's the same exact word that is used here in Isaiah. He took the stroke. And you know what's interesting about that Hebrew word, negah? I'll tell you what's interesting about that. It, it most often, sometimes it can mean blow, like a blow, like inflicted, and certainly Jesus encountered that. But do you know what really negah is? It, it most often is transliterated to have an infection, to have like an incurable wound, to have a mark like uh, we see in Leviticus with leprosy. The stroke is actually an infection. Nagah is an infection. The whole infection is going to be placed upon this character, whoever this character is. It's like the infection, and the infection, the leprosy was always a picture of what? Of sin. We look back and we see all the all the tedious things we see in Leviticus about what do you do with the house of a leper, you know? Well, you've got to go through this long process and take two birds and kill them, and this is how you... And, and then we flash forward, and Jesus begins to allude often to this idea of leprosy as being something that infects the whole body, and it begins to draw people into sin. They become slaves of sin. Imagine if this passage in Nagah was actually looking forward to whoever this one is that's bowed down, that has this path of crookedness, you know, the Lord making it, putting it on him, and then now all of a sudden he's taking the infection or the the mark of infection upon himself. Not just a blow, he's going to take that, but he's going to take the infection of the whole world. You know what I was infected with, and I still am, sin. You know, I know I missed the mark. I know I missed the mark with God. Was this Davidic king going to come in triumph, but also be, in a hybrid sense, the very one who is actually made to be sin on my behalf? So he can take my raging virus that is flowing through my blood and affecting my thoughts and my mental patterns and my relationships and my marriage and the way I treat my children and the way I treat business associates, the way I view the world, this infection that makes me all about me. Is he going to take that kind of infection upon himself and like somehow absorb the infection into himself? Could that be what this Davidic covenant is saying as opposed to just Solomon? I think so. I think there's something so profound here. And it, this, what's, this makes, this interpretive view, makes the whole Bible and the narrative come alive. I want to take you now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Many of you will know it well. Look, when I came to Christ, what happened to me and is what has happened to many of you and maybe some of you watching and some of you not yet is that I became a new creature. I saw things differently. It's no different than if you're suffering. Laura and I suffered through COVID and ours was horrible. Hers even worse than mine. I didn't think she was going to make it. It was awful. I mean, some people said it didn't affect them that much. Man, she was this virus raging through her body, and me too. And I, we were out of it for, day, for days. I mean, we we're just completely out of it. And, 
And, and then as soon as that infection was taken from our body, it's amazing. We're just going to get up and then we're going again. It's just amazing what happens. It's like new life. The infection somehow has been brought, taken out of our body or, or battled within our body. Catch this with that image in mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning you're like, I want him to take my infection. That's what the gospel is. I believe in him. I want him to take my infection upon himself to where he's bowed down and his paths are crooked. And well, he didn't commit it, but it's been placed upon him. And I want him to take my beating, my infection, my blows, my rod that I deserve. I want him to take it so that I can go scot-free and the infection goes from me to him. That's what I want, and that's the gospel, not you and your wonderful behavior because you're trying harder now and all that. No, 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 no. You cannot do it on your own. You can't be philanthropic enough. You can't love enough. You can't work hard enough. He takes the infection, and he just goes, and he breathes it in in some way, like kind of like the Green Mile, if you ever saw that movie where he just breathed in the, the, the bad stuff out of the other guy. It was a beautiful picture, and the Green Mile was so popular because unbeknownst to most people, it's a picture of the gospel. It's Jesus taking the infection for the world. It's powerful. I became in Christ what he is now a new creature. I became a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. All these things are from God. Wow. Really? You want to take my infection? I thought you were just always mad at me, God. You want to breathe in my infection? Who reconciled to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling. This is important. Reconciling what? The house of Israel to himself? No. Reconciling the world to himself. Because this involves all the nations. Okay? Not counting their trespasses against them. I mean, we ought to just stop right here and dance around a little while. If I could dance, I'd dance here up on stage for her. I mean, I really would. I'd dance around. Uh, not, re- what? You're going to breathe in my infection, and then you're not going to count any of this against me? And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's how I'm going to close this morning. Think about this. Jesus is coming as an ambassador on the back of this donkey. That's why he didn't come in on a horse ambassadors of peace come in on donkeys. And now he says, now you're an ambassador for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, please let Jesus breathe in your infection. Let him be beaten for your sin. We do that retroactively now every time we come into the kingdom. We say, I want him to take my punishment. I want to be reconciled. I don't want my sins to be counted against me. And then verse 21 cannot make it more clear. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who didn't know any sin. So let's be clear. Jesus didn't commit sin, but he made him, what? Who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. We'll let him suck in the infection of the world. And then we'll see that the stroke that was due 
Israel, and then by extension the nations, will fall on him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we can be free. So that virus won't be raging through our body anymore. Is that powerful? See, I think that's what, I think that's what this Davidic covenant revolves around. I know it's a little nuanced, and maybe not everybody would agree with that view, and maybe, maybe in some ways it does apply. Certainly it does imply to, apply to Solomon in some ways. But I don't like jumping in and out of pictures all the time. I think the picture's complete as it is. And I think this beautiful picture, this beautiful, amazing thing, this picture of being bowed down with sin on top, the avah, where God actually made, made, well, in some ways, He made Jesus' path crooked. Jesus was perfectly straight, but He put our path on top, our crooked path on top of Him. Now, that's amazing to me. That's shocking to me. Now, if you understand that, with Jesus taking vicariously through him all the sin of the world, then you'll understand that he clearly was the king, right? And Because he, he's going to tell Pilate, I'm the king, and of course the magi that came early in his life, and nobody argued that he wasn't the king. He's definitely the king. But he knew that it wasn't going to appear when he's going to be hanging on that cross that's not going to appear like a king. In fact, they would go as far as mocking him by putting king of the Jews on that sign above his head, like it's clear, oh, this is your king of the Jews? This is the king of the Jews? This naked, beaten, brutalized, infection-filled, grief-bearer, this is the king of the Jews? Yes. See, that's what people don't understand. My Jewish friends still don't understand it. If he'd have been the, if he'd have been the king, then then he would have done what he was supposed to do. And we'd, be, we'd already be in this forever kingdom. We wouldn't have these Palestinians against the Israelis and Israelis against the Palestinians. We'd have peace or, or we'd be the dominant culture and we'd subdue all the nations around us or whatever. They vastly missed the point. And that's why Jesus had to set up this parade. He said, yes, I'm a king, but not the kind of king you're expecting. I'm going to be the kind of king that Zechariah saw some four or five hundred years before the time of Jesus. Zechariah chapter 9 couldn't be more clear. Again, we're going back into the prophets. We're not making up Christian ideas or dogma from Christianity that, like I said, guys in pointy hats made up hundreds of years after the fact. We're going back into the Jewish prophets and saying, what were the Jewish prophets seeing? Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Kings don't come in on donkeys ambassadors of peace do or do they Zechariah says they do but not every king only this king verse 10 says I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem 
and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to Israel. No, he will speak peace to Israel and all the nations. Everybody. That includes us if you're here and you're not Jewish here today. And I know we have Jewish brothers and sisters with us here today. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river, not just from the river to the sea, which is being chanted around the world today, but what? From the river to the ends of the earth. Forget just this little sliver of land we call Israel today or the West Bank and Gaza and Israel and in between. Forget that. From the river to the ends of the earth. He never gets to the ends of the earth if he comes as a king. But if he'll come and sprinkle the nations and speak peace to the nations, then the whole world becomes involved. This is a global restoration process. Not just an Israeli defense against whoever their overlords might be at the time of the writing. So here's, our, here's my question to you, and, and again, I, 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 one more place, real quickly, Psalm 118, this is what's being chanted, if you remember, this is, as they're coming in, he's riding in on this donkey, and, and, and he's coming in, and they're chanting Psalm 118, this is what they're chanting, because this is, this is the king coming, okay, and it's very important, very important that you see this, because a lot of people miss this. They don't get the full context of what they're saying because they take a part of it out, but they miss part of it. Now catch this. Watch. Psalm 118, verse 19. So again, we call it Palm Sunday. For those of you who haven't been here the last couple of weeks or you're watching, Palm Sunday, they lay out the palm branches, they throw their coats on, he's coming down on, on a donkey, and there are two donkeys evidently, two donkeys, and they're coming down, and he's, and he's riding down, and they're chanting. This is what all the Gospels tell us. They're chanting Psalm 118. Okay, oh, and I'm going to start in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. And then verse 22 says something very fascinating that's missed in this context a lot, and it is this, the stone which the builders rejected, Right? has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord's doing this. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, and do send prosperity. And this is what they were chanting, verse 26, on the triumphal entry, on Palm Sunday. This is what they were chanting. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the chant. This is our Messiah. And what they missed right in context of Psalm 118. Oh, by the way, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But this is also going to be the one that the builders rejected, even though he is the chief cornerstone. Are you with me? A king in triumph, but just a few days later, later rejected. Crucify him. Crucify him. King of the Jews as he hangs on the cross. Yeah, right. Yeah. King of the Jews. <laughs> yeah. Blessing to the nations. 
right. They won't even know about him beyond this little haggard group of fishermen and tax collectors. This thing we will squash. We will nip it in the bud. The nations, not even the rest of our people will know about it. He'll just become a little miracle worker that'll quickly and soon be relegated to the dustbins of history. Unless the prophets were right. So what is it? What do you do with this? You celebrate him as king? Yes. Joy to the world. I mean, <laughs> the nations. But should we celebrate him equally as an ambassador of peace? Yes. Hybrid king. Both. Conquering when he comes back. Humble and mounted on a donkey. See, we're still in the humble and mounted on a donkey part of the history of God's plan. He's still humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, what is our response to this? Do we even have a response? You know, everybody's watching. What is it? A wonderful, it's a wonderful life this time of year. What's Clarence the uh, angel say? You know? <laughs> Clarence said, you've been given a great gift, George, the chance to see what life would be like without you. My question to you is, Jesus, is Jesus calling us into following him and also picking up our cross, if you will? Is he calling us? We just read it in 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors. We've been given to be ambassadors. Ambassadors ride in on donkeys. Are we going to be the donkey brigade? Are we going to come in and say, we're Christians, we're taking over the political realm, we're taking over, you know, we're going to be the moral majority, we're going to, we're going to fight against all the sponsors, we're going, to, we're going to be the ones, and this is, you know, we're going to fight this way. Are we going to come in as ambassadors of reconciliation, understanding the platform of our king, and if that's the case, we're going to look back and say, is the world any different because of you, George Bailey, and George got to see, well, yes, it is. But my question to you is, is the world any different because you've lived here? It will be if you're part of the donkey brigade. It won't be if you're just a triumphalist, like, hey, we're the Christians, and we're the holier than thou, and we're better than you. Don't you realize a person that really is a believer has had the infection sucked out of their body by a king? How do you brag about that? I got nothing to brag about. He did the heavy lifting and is calling us as a community into a place where we also will mount a donkey and ride into a place wherever he's put us on the earth and weep over it as we'll see next week. He wept over the city. Do you weep over where you live? For us, for at least part of the year, for many of you, 
the Coachella Valley? Do you weep over the city? Do you ever drive up on 74 and look down? I mean, I was driving here this morning. I saw all these people. It was such a beautiful day. Bikers and cyclists and golfers and pickleballers and all these different things and going to breakfast and Starbucks lined up around the corner. And I'm wondering, I wonder if there'll be that kind of a celebration at church at the Red Door for just lies. And, I'm, and I wept over it. I'm like, there's no thought of God in many of these people's minds at all. I don't judge it. I weep over it. Don't they realize that that infection can be sucked right out of their body, that virus of self, and then they can make a difference in the world? They'll look back. I just want, all I want is the opportunity one day to hear, I don't think the angel Clarence will be up there. (laughs) I think that's, but as it relates to our metaphor, and say, I wonder what the world would look like without you, Jeff. And I, I, in some ways, I don't want to see that because I think, well, it didn't change much. But I'd like to see that my missional community here, that we change the world because we were the donkey brigade, not the triumphalists, the holier than thou. Forget it. Not interested. I'm not holier than thou but I have had the infection sucked right out of my body. And many of you have. So what do you do? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall have the infection sucked out of your body. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and He will bear the weight of your sin. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you become a new creature in Him. Imagine that. If that's even true, I tell people all the time, they fight against the gospel, uh, or at least their perception of the gospel. I'm like, you want this to be true. You want death not to be the end. You want some kind of redemption outside of your own efforts. You want this to be true. And yet Satan comes and attacks and attacks and attacks and makes all this look absurd. But that's why we come here and we abide in his word so that we know that these things are true. We know in whom we have believed. So I'm going to close this morning with this song. I will not be singing it for you. You'll be happy to know. But this is something that recently came out on our, on our website with One for Israel. And uh, it's joy to the world. But like I said, if the gospel works in the Middle East, it'll work anywhere. So on this, we're gonna, some of the singing in this Joy for the World is going to be in Arabic with some of my Arabic friends who I love, love. My daughter Tatum has, we, got our, we were given these little Yeti things when I was in Budapest speaking to the staff, and uh, Thomas is a beautiful, precious guy, I love Arabic guy, and, and somehow he got mine and I got his. So I came home with Thomas's Yeti, and Tatum stole it, so she only drinks out of the Thomas Cup, we call it, the Thomas Cup. Uh, maybe we're close enough that that's okay, right? And, and, and at the same hand, so, and, and all of my Israeli friends, right? And I weep over, and I, I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a gospel statement. The gospel can work. There's joy to the world when you see Palestinians, when you see Israelis worshiping the creator of the universe together. And so we, this just came out a number, about a month or so ago, and it is joy to the world in Arabic, in Hebrew, and in English, meaning the nations. 
because Jesus came to save the world. And all the people that you're going to sing up here, and then Dr. Sareff's going to make a quick appeal at the end, which I think is very appropriate for this time of year. Uh, what you're going to see is you're going to see all these people worshiping together, and you're going to go like, this works. These are all the people that have had the infection sucked out of them, whether they be Arabic-speaking people or Hebrew-speaking people or English speakers. It's the whole kit and caboodle. And that is why Jesus came on a donkey. It's glorious. It's the gospel. And it's true. And it works its way out this way. So I'm sending you home this week with this. As bad as it gets and as bad as your newsfeed gets, this is just shot in the last few months in Israel with Arabs and Israelis and, and English-speaking people. And it's joy to the world. And I hope that makes your Christmas even better. <laughs>